0: In April of uh, 1963, when the computer uh, revolution had just begun, pioneers in the field coined a brand new phrase. And in those days, not many people knew how to operate a computer, and those who did made some mistakes, and sometimes these new experts entered the wrong data only to discover a universal truth. If the raw data is bad, the computer can't do anything good with it. And what you put into the computer determines what comes out. Now, if you put the right data in, hopefully the right answers come out. However, the reverse is also true. Now, in order to express that truth, a new word was coined, described in four letters, what, uh, both the cause and the consequence of putting the wrong data into the computer. Many of you know what word I'm talking about. The word is G-I-G-O. It stands for garbage in, garbage out. Those four letters summarize a huge truth. What you put in determines what you get out. What you put in determines what you get out. If your input is garbage, guess what your output is going to be? And what is true of computers is also true of the human mind. Uh, That comparison is timely and appropriate because the human mind has often been compared to a computer. In fact, the human mind is far more complex than most advanced computers ever designed. But the basic principle is still true. Garbage in, garbage out. What we put into our mind determines what we get out. I read somewhere that the average person has 10,000 separate thoughts each and every day. That uh, works out to be like 3.5 million thoughts in a year. And if you live to be 75, you will have 26 million different thoughts in your lifetime. Already most of you have had over 1,000 or 2,000 separate thoughts since you got out of bed this morning. You'll probably have another 8,000 before you hit the sack tonight, and then you'll start all over again tomorrow. See, every one of those 10,000 thoughts represents a choice that you need to make, a decision that you need to think about. Suppose someone gave you $50,000 this morning and said, spend it any any way you like as long as you spend it all before you go to bed tonight. I'll bet you'd sit down and think hard about what you would do with that much money. How sad that we devote so much time to how we spend our money and so little time on how we spend our thoughts. How sad that one seems so important and the other so trivial. But are our thoughts really so unimportant? Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Beware of what you set your mind on because you will surely uh, will become that. Norman Vincent Peale said, change your thoughts and you change your world. Henry Ford gave that truth a different spin when he declared thinking is the hardest work in the world, which is probably why so few people engage in it. (laughs) Then I ran across this perceptive comment. Two thoughts cannot occupy the mind at the same time. So the choice is ours whether or not our thoughts will be constructive or destructive. My whole message today is in these four words The choice is yours. God gave you 10,000 thoughts a day. It's up to you what you do with them. In the New Testament book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul speaks uh, these words of encouragement. He says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw, from me, saw me doing. And then the God of peace will be with you remember what I said just a few moments ago the choice is ours God gave us 10,000 thoughts a day and it's up to us with what we do with them and if it's true that two thoughts cannot occupy the mind at the same time the choice then is between positive and negative thoughts how do we stack up how do we stack up first let's talk about four kinds of negative thinking So many people struggle with negative thinking and we know that negative thoughts poison the mind and ultimately the soul and here are four common examples of negative thinking. One is self-pity. We all fall into that trap sooner or later. Life is hard for all of us and as that old cliche says, into each life some rain must fall. It's easy to think that somehow we've been dealt an unfair hand that while our neighbor is basking in the sunshine, we're living in this perpetual downpour. The self-pitying person says, you don't know what I'm going through. You try living with this 24 hours a day and see how happy you are. Second type of negative thinking is blaming. This is the other extreme. Blaming is an attempt to find a scapegoat for our problems. We can't face life on our own. So we find another person who seems to be the source of all of our problems. It might be our husband or wife, could be our children, could be our parents, it's often a friend, a neighbor, a boss, someone at church. Blaming is dangerous because it leads to perpetual victimhood. Here's a third type of negative thinking. An unwillingness to change. This more or less follows from the first two categories. Once we immerse ourselves in self-pity, and once we discover that we're a victim, the logical conclusion is that we can't or won't change. Unfortunately, this type of negative thinking leads, or tends to reinforce itself. Since we can't change, then our behavior can't be our own fault. So we never have to face it honestly. This person says, it's no use trying, I'll never change. And I have every right to be hurt. I'm not going to give it up. I know it's wrong, and I know uh, I'm not going to stop. God made me this way, so it's not my fault. The last of the four types of negative thinking is anger or bitterness. Usually, this is the logical outcome. Once we begin to pity ourselves, we become a victim, and victims can't be blamed. Therefore, we refuse to face the possibility that we ourselves are the source of our own problems. When someone suggests otherwise, we get angry, we get defensive, we get bitter. We remember every miserable thing that's ever been done to us, every remark that's ever been made against us. We stew in our own juices over the slightest Negative remark made by another person. And we bristle at the notion that our life could be different. We hold grudges even though we say we don't. We glare and turn our head when we see our enemy coming toward us and we shut people out of our life. Shut them out cold. You see, our thoughts matter. Negative thinking leads to negative living. Now let's reverse it and look at the benefits of positive thinking. Thinking negative thoughts is not our only option. St. Paul gives us another possibility. Years ago, Dr. Norman uh, Vincent Peale wrote a best-selling book. Maybe you've read it, The Power of Positive Thinking. But he wasn't the first positive thinking. That honor should go to the Apostle Paul. At the end of his letter to the Philippians, he gives a prescription for positive thinking thinking that if followed has the power to transform our life. Listen to his practical advice. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me and everything you heard from me and saw me doing, and then, and then, the God of peace will be with you. This verse gives us eight questions to ask about our thoughts. Before you think, before you speak, ask these eight questions. Is it true? Truth is the first test. Any Rotarians in the room? None. Okay. Any ro- people would like to be a Rotarian? No, I won't, I won't. I'm not on a recruiting trip. I belong to um, uh, the DeWitt North Lansing Sunrise Rotary Club. And even there, in an organization of business professionals, we have what we call the four-way test of the things we think, say, and do. And the four-way test begins by asking, is it the truth? Of the things we think, say, and do, first question to ask ourselves, is it the truth? And that's St. Paul's point as well. Before we open our mouth, are we speaking the truth? Do our words have the ring of truth about them? That question rules out all that is dishonest and untrue and unreliable. Wouldn't that be great if that's the first question everyone in our world today would be asking? Is it the truth? Second question, is it noble? uh, That's what we say, honorable and worthy of reverence. Noble refers to that which is majestic, that which is awe-inspiring. This word is used in scripture to describe the proper qualities of a leader in the church. Is our thought life honorable? Do we think about things that are noble and of serious purpose, or do we dwell on the frivolous, the trivial? Third question, is it right? Are our thoughts and words in conformity to God's standards? Not is it right in my own eyes. Is it right in the eyes of others? Uh, is it right in the, in the eyes of God, not just other people? If our thoughts were broadcast for the world to hear, would we be ashamed? Would we be embarrassed? If others knew what we were thinking, what would they think of us? The fourth question, is it pure? This word means undefiled, chaste, clean, holy. It touches the whole area of moral purity. Is our thought life clean? We used to say, you know, get your mind out of the gutter. Someone has said, if you live in the gutter, don't be surprised that your mind is covered with slime. (laughs) Some years ago, I found a list of probing questions. And this came from the Promise Keepers organization that suggests that men who truly want to live godly lives should ask each other these questions each week as a means of staying pure in a dirty world. And among those questions were things like, have I been with another person in the past week in a way that could appear compromising? Have all my financial dealings been filled with integrity? Have I spent adequate time in Bible study and prayer? Have I spent quality time or given priority to my family? Have I fulfilled God's purpose for my life? Have I, the last one, have I just lied to you? The last question is a killer, isn't it? It's not enough to do all the other things on the list. If we want to come clean, we have to tell the truth. Here's the fifth question, is it lovely? This word is used only here in the New Testament. It literally means love towards. It has the idea of attracting loveliness as a magnet attracts metal. One person translates it as those things that grace attracts. Do our thoughts automatically attach themselves to that which is beautiful, that which is lovely? A thought may be true, and even write, but still not be lovely. Here's a simple rule, if it's not lovely, it doesn't make you lovely. Don't say it, don't do it. Don't dwell on it, don't repeat it. Question number six, is it admirable? That is, is it worthy of study and contemplation, or is it cheap, is it tawdry? This question asks us to focus on the things that are positive, not negative, constructive, not destructive, things that build other people up, not tear them down. And this means editing our words so that we simply delete the non-admirable things from our vocabulary. You see, some things may be true, but that doesn't mean we should dwell on them. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5:12 says uh, certain things that uh, are so evil says that it is shameful even to talk about the things that are ungodly, that ungodly people do in secret. And I take it, it's a, he's referencing to a a certain form of sexual sin, certain gross forms of idolatry, certain areas of Satan's kingdom that should be off limits to the people of God. Don't dwell there, Paul says. Don't focus on the evil around you. And this principle of concentrating on things that are admirable and lovely puts to rest the foolish notion that I hear occasionally uh, that we should expose our children to sin so they'll know what sin is like. Well, first of all, our children see enough sin all around them without any help from us. Second, exposing our young people runs the risk that they may be attracted to it. You see, sin is so powerful that we do well to stay as far away from it as possible. We don't have to lift the top off the sewer in order to know that it stinks, do we? If that's not enough, the Apostle Paul gives us two catch-all categories. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Excellent refers to virtue, and praiseworthy means that those things that God himself would approve of. So here we have two final questions. Is it morally excellent? Is it something that God would approve? Taken together, these eight questions point the way toward positive thinking. And Paul says, think on these things. It's a command. It's in the present tense. Keep on focusing your thoughts in these eight areas. Find the truth and think about it. Find what's noble and lovely and virtuous and think about it. Do these things, and what happens? The God of peace will be with you. Those who think on these things will experience God's peace in their life. So how do we change our mind? That leaves us with only one area to consider. All of us fight the tendency to let our minds dwell on the negative. How do we change our mind? Here are some practical suggestions for those who want to take Paul's advice seriously, and these are all all make pretty good New Year's resolutions if you're still waiting to do that and haven't done that yet. Um, First, analyze your input. It all begins right here. Remember G-I-G-O? If you put garbage into your mind, garbage is what you're going to get out this touches so many areas of life because we rep- we receive input from so many sources these days what about the music we listen to or the movies we watch or the radio stations that we flip on in the morning or what about the books we read or the shows we watch on tv or the conversations we have what about the phone calls we make or the people that we date or the places we go on the weekend or what about the places we go on vacation and what about our secret habits What about our hobbies? What about our daydreams? What about the things we do when we're away from home? 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we should destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God and capture their religious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. But in order to do that, we've got to look at the sources of our input. We may be suffering spiritually because we spend a lot of our week cramming our mind with falsehoods of evil and impurity. Or we may, it may be that we simply fill our minds with spiritual junk food. And if that's the case, an hour on Sunday is certainly not going to clean all that up. But secondly, we have to change our mind's diet. Analyze what we've been putting into our mind, then decide to change It won't be easy, especially if we've gotten hooked on... Trashy novels or reality TV or soap operas or trivial conversations or living off gossip and rumors, but we have to do that. And one suggestion is, if we truly want to change our life, find a friend who's going to hold us accountable to that. In my experience, lasting change happens much faster when we have someone that we respect who's going to hold us accountable for our thoughts and our behavior. But then third, examine the influence of our friends. 1 Corinthians 15.33 warns us that bad company corrupts good character. You know what that means? If we run with pigs, eh, we're going to smell like a pig. If we spend our time with rats, we're going to look and act like a rat. Let's face it, we become the people we hang around with. And if they love to party, we're going to have to party with them, or we're going to have to get some new friends. If they like to drink, we're going to feel uncomfortable unless we drink with them. If they use coarse language, we'll we'll pick up their vocabulary. If they are angry at the world, well, guess what? Pretty soon we'll be angry at the world as well. If they are negative, hostile, critical, filled with self-pity, convinced that the world has cheated them, those traits are going to rub off on us sooner or later. And so many Christians fall into the trap of thinking we can... We can lift our friends up. And all too often, we find that they have drugged us down. You'll never get a new mind unless you examine your friends and the impact they have on your life. And then fourth, begin to memorize Scripture. Now, to be honest, this is more difficult for me at my age than when I was younger. But if there's something you would uh, like to do, I would suggest to try memorizing scripture. Start with the Psalms. Years ago, um, I memorized Psalm 100, Psalm 23, parts of Psalm 90, Psalm 1, and a lot more. And I found that the Psalms introduced me to God in a way that I never knew him before. Besides that, if you read enough of the Psalms, you discover the whole gamut of human emotion, don't you? Sorrow, fear, anger, despair, frustration, joy, excitement, exaltation, profound worship. And more than once, I found myself waking up in the middle of the night bothered by some problem or gripped with some nameless fear, and in those moments, I begin to quote a portion of scripture that I've read or committed to memory or the a, a verse to a song. I discover in those moments that God's word soothes my soul chases away my fears, brings problems to their, down to their prob, uh, proper size. So I, re- I recommend that you give it a try, and as you begin to hide God's word in your heart, it will slowly begin to change your mind. But then finally, finally, remember, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Philippians 4.8, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure, Lovely and admirable, think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. What you think today, you become tomorrow. Your mind is the best predictor of your future. If you think you can't, you probably won't. If you think angry thoughts, angry words are sure to follow. If you fill your mind with sexual fantasies, your body will find a way to fulfill those desires. If you dwell on your problems, they will soon overwhelm you. If you feel like a victim, soon you'll become one. If you give yourself to worrying, don't be surprised when you get ulcers. If you think low thoughts, low living is soon to follow. If you expect defeat, you'll probably lose. If you dwell on rejection, you're going to set yourself up for even more rejection. If you focus on how others misunderstood you, then sooner or later you're going to become angry and bitter. You see what goes in, must come out. Sooner or later your thoughts translate into reality. You're not what you think you are, but what you think. Is what you are the flip side is also true if we focus on the truth then we're going to learn to speak the truth if we look on noble things nobility will be a mark of our life if we seek out lovely things our life is going to be lovely to other people if we dwell on that which is right then what is wrong is not going to have any attraction to us if we think on pure things then we'll become pure if we look for virtue we'll find it if we search for higher things we'll find things that elevate our life so here's God's prescription for believers who are trapped in unhealthy living. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Focus on the good. Focus on the pure. The true, the holy, the right, the lovely. Find things that elevate your mind and think about those things. You have the power. One final word, if you are a Christ follower, you have within you the power to obey this command. You can literally change your mind if you want to by remembering that all that is best is embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus. He is the truth. He is the noble son of God. He is the standard of righteousness. He is the fountain of purity. He is altogether lovely. He is the admirable savior. He's the source of all virtue. He is the one whom God entirely approves of. And if you link yourself with Jesus, you are joined with the highest moral power in the universe. He is the embodiment of everything the New Testament has commanded us to do. It's all about Jesus. All virtue, all beauty, all holiness, all truth, all that is good, all that is right is found in him. Think on these things. This is not some abstract philosophy that the Apostle Paul gives us. It's a call to to a personal relationship. If Christ is in our thoughts, then all these other things will be there as well. When Jesus comes into our heart, he will give us a brand new life. He gives us a new way of thinking. Years ago, there was an old gospel song. Some of you may remember it, written by Stuart Hamblin, had these words. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. When Jesus Christ reigns in our heart, we will love the good and hate the bad. We will love the truth and will hate falsehood. We will love the lovely and hate the ugly. We will love the pure and hate the dirty. That's what happens when Jesus Christ takes control of our life. He changes us from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, help us to take hold of Jesus by faith today, to walk with him to talk with him, to learn from him, hold on to him and not ever let go, to take Christ into our minds and enthrone him in our thoughts and know that our life in doing so will never be the same again.